Amen. I invite you to take your copy of Scripture and turn to Romans, Romans chapter 8. And we have been in a study in Romans 6 through 8 now for some time. And uh, we've been working through Romans 8 at a little bit of a slower pace. And this morning, we are coming to verse 17, which actually marks the end of the first half of Romans chapter 8. And then we'll be moving into the second half of Romans chapter 8. Uh, next week. And so I want to read for us, uh, for context's sake, I want to read for us verses 1 through 17, so the first half of the chapter, and we'll focus this morning on verse 17 uh, in our time together. So if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll find our passage on page 944, page 944. And uh, I'll begin reading for us in Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So please follow along in your Bible. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemns sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers... We are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Verse 17. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, for these great and precious promises, we give you glory and we give you honor and we give you praise. Help us now by your spirit 
to understand something more of all the glorious blessings that you have granted to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, as I mentioned, we will give our attention this week to Romans chapter 8, verse 17. And as you look at verse 17 carefully, it's not difficult to discern what the focus of our passage is. In fact, you'll notice there in the text that Paul uses the word heir three times in one verse. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, as I mentioned last week, in Romans chapter 6 through 8, Paul is concerned that we know and understand our identity in Christ, that we know and understand who we are in Jesus, in order that we might grow up and mature in Christ. And of course, last week, Paul was concerned that we understand and know that we are sons of God. That's what we saw in the previous verses in our text. And this week, Paul reminds us that we are heirs. That is, in Christ, we now possess the right, we are now the rightful and legal beneficiaries of an inheritance that God has granted to us. So that's what it means that we are heirs in Christ. We are now the rightful and legal beneficiaries of an inheritance that God has granted to us. And the Apostle Peter says that this inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. Now I imagine most of us have not been the recipients of a large inheritance of wealth. Having said that, a properly timed and sufficiently abundant inheritance can change the trajectory of one's life forever. This was actually true of George Washington. Washington, as a young man, actually experienced two tragic losses in his life. When he was 11 years old, his father died. And then when he was 20 years old, his older brother died. These were terrible losses for Washington. Yet both the death of Washington's father and the death of his brother resulted in Washington inheriting a significant amount of land in the state of Virginia. In addition to that, years later, Washington married his wife Mary, who was also the benefactor of an enormous amount of wealth. As a result of these events, and there were other things as well, other events that took place in Washington's life, these inheritances catapulted Washington in the state of Virginia into a position of prominence and influence. You see, a properly timed and sufficiently abundant inheritance can change the trajectory of a person's life forever. And Paul wants us to know that through Jesus, we are sons, and as sons, we are heirs. We are heirs to an inheritance that is already ours in one sense, and an inheritance that awaits us in the future. And our understanding of this inheritance, our realization of this inheritance that is ours in Christ should profoundly impact our perception of ourselves as believers, our perception of our present lives, and our understanding of our future. 
So this morning, I want us to consider more fully what does it mean from our text, what does it mean to be an heir of God? And we'll see in our passage this morning four ideas here related to this concept of what it means to be an heir of God. First of all, we'll consider the logic of our inheritance. Secondly, the substance of our inheritance. Third, the source of our inheritance. And fourth, the condition of our inheritance. So first of all, the logic of our inheritance. Look there in Romans chapter 8, verse 17, and Paul writes, And if children, then heirs. So you notice the logic there. If we are children of God, then we are heirs of God, because it is the children who receive the inheritance. And as we think about this idea of the children receiving the inheritance, we also acknowledge that in the previous verses, Paul has given a special attention to establish that we are not only children of God, but that we are sons of God. You see there, he specifies specifically that we are sons of God. Because the inheritance, as we think about the Old Testament Scriptures in particular, the inheritance moved through the children and especially, primarily, through the line of the Son. Of course, this is illustrated in the patriarchs. Uh, The promises of God were given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So the inheritance or the promise went from Abraham to his son Isaac and then to Isaac's son Jacob. And so if you look there in verses 14 to 16, you see Paul says there, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Now there, Paul uses the more general term, children, but it's apparent by the context that children here is a reference to sons. So we might wonder then, why does Paul say here in these verses in Romans chapter 8 that we are sons of God rather than saying we are daughters of God? Is Paul only addressing male Christians here? Or or why does Paul not say we are sons and daughters of God? Well, we should establish right away that Paul is not exclusively addressing male Christians here. We see throughout Romans chapter 6 through 8 that he uses this word you, which we would translate y'all, right? It's in the plural. And he's speaking to the church as a whole in Rome, male and female. Or when he says we, and he's speaking to the church in Rome, he's speaking of himself as well, he's addressing all of them, male and female. So if Paul is speaking to all Christians, male and female, why does he make this distinction? Why does he choose to speak of Christians as sons of God and not daughters of God? As I mentioned earlier, in Jewish culture and also in Greco-Roman culture, it was the son and not the daughter who was the heir of the status and the rank and the bulk of wealth of the father. Now, of course, daughters were honored in other ways. When a daughter was married, she received a dowry. 
And then given her marriage, she had the opportunity to benefit from the inheritance of her husband. As the father of the husband may give an inheritance and then she would benefit from that inheritance. But the status and the rank and the bulk of wealth that a father possessed was primarily bestowed to the son. This is why Paul says that all Christians, male and female, are sons of God. In this sense, do you see, Paul is not excluding women, but rather acknowledging that in Christ a favored status has been granted to both men and women. As it relates to the internal inheritance that is ours in Christ, we are all sons of God. We actually witnessed something of this dynamic play itself out in the British monarch over the last hundred years or so. You know, Queen Elizabeth II, who died not too long ago, ascended the throne because her father had two daughters and not a son. If her father had had a son, even if Queen Elizabeth was older than the son, Queen Elizabeth would have been passed over and the throne would have gone to the son. Like in Jewish and Greco-Roman culture, the privileges and wealth of the father goes to the son. You may also know, though, that in the latter parts of Queen Elizabeth's reign in 2013, she led an effort to pass the Succession to the Crown Act, which declares that any firstborn heir, regardless of gender, male or female, had legal right to the throne. See, we see a similar dynamic being spoken of here by the Apostle Paul. And, and, and it's important for us to point this out in part too because there's so much confusion in our own culture today as it relates to gender. We read a corresponding passage. Alan read it for us earlier from Galatians where Paul speaks of this reality that we are sons and we are heirs of God through Christ. And it's in that context that the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, so speaking in the same dynamics that he's speaking of here in Romans chapter 8. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And some people will point to that passage and they'll say, See, there it is. In Christ, there's no difference between males and females. So males can marry males, and females can marry females, and males can become females, and females can become males. It's no difference. There's no distinction. That is just butchering what the Apostle Paul is saying in Galatians chapter 3. It's clearly, what not Paul, it's clearly not what Paul intends. Paul is not erasing all distinctions between men and women. In fact, in multiple places, Paul affirms heterosexual marriage. He speaks of the different roles of men and women in the home and in the church. Rather, what the Apostle Paul is saying is that when it comes to our justification in God's eternal courtroom, when it comes to our adoption into God's family, when it comes to our status as heirs of God's inheritance, there is no distinction, there is no gradation of benefits based upon our gender. All of us, male and female, are full recipients of God's grace and full benefactors of God's eternal inheritance. 
In this way, Paul honors the distinction between men and women and elevates the status of women as full co-heirs with Christ. So is it appropriate to say that we are sons and daughters of God? Well, if we're thinking in terms of biological gender, I'm a man, you're a woman, imaginary woman here, God is our Father, Yes, I think it's appropriate to use that type of language. We are sons and daughters of God. But if we're thinking in terms of eternal inheritance, no, in terms of eternal inheritance, we are sons of God. And that is good news. Because it means that irrespective of our biological gender, we enjoy the legal rights and full access to the inheritance that God has granted to us in Christ. So we see here in our text the logic of our inheritance. If we are sons, then we are heirs because the inheritance is granted to the sons. Now, secondly, the substance of our inheritance. Look there in the text and we read these words in verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God. So what is the substance of our inheritance? That is, what is it that that we do, in fact, inherit. Now, this language of inheritance, Paul's not just kind of coming up with this out of nowhere. In fact, this language of inheritance runs all through the Old Testament. And it's especially related to the promise that God made to Abraham to bless Abraham and his descendants with a land, with the promised land, with the land of Canaan, and thereby to make them a great nation. We especially see this language of inheritance in the book of Joshua. So if you think about the history of the nation of Israel, God makes this promise to Abraham that he will make them a great nation. Abraham has descendants. They multiply. Then they go into Egyptian bondage and slavery. God delivers them from Egyptian bondage and slavery. Uh, He leads them and protects them as they wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Leads them all the way up to the edge of the land of Canaan. This is the land that he promised to Abraham and to Abraham's descendants. And then he gives Joshua the responsibility to lead his people to conquer the Canaanites and to take the promised land. And under the leadership of Joshua, God's people do in fact do that. They conquer the land, they possess the land that God has promised to them. And then in the book of Joshua, over and over again, we read of Joshua portioning out the land, the land that they have inherited, the land of promise that God has granted to them. Now, in the book of Romans, so we get this language of inheritance all through the Old Testament. It's particularly related to the land and how the people of God have inherited the land from God as His promise to Abraham. And then in Romans, Paul picks up this idea, actually not first in Romans chapter 8, but first in Romans chapter 4. And in Romans chapter 4, Paul indicates that the conquest of the land of Canaan by the Israelites was only a partial fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 13, the Apostle Paul says, For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. 
So what Paul says there is that Abraham and his descendants will not only inherit the promised land, the land of Canaan, but they will inherit the world, the earth. This is the promise that God has made to Abraham and to his descendants. And this inheritance is not finally to Abraham's physical descendants, but rather it is for Abraham's spiritual descendants. That is for those who trust in the promise of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is actually the point that Paul is making in Romans chapter 4. That this promise is both for Jews and Gentiles. He makes it again in Ephesians chapter 3. So for example, in Ephesians chapter 3 verse 6, the Apostle Paul writes, The mystery, that is the thing that's been hidden before in the Old Testament, but now has been clearly made known. The mystery of the gospel is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So the inheritance that God has promised His people is not only the land of Canaan, it's also the world, the earth. And this promise will be fulfilled in God's people, both Jew and Gentile, who trust in Christ. We will inherit a new heavens and a new earth. And that's where Paul will be taking us in the weeks to come. That's what we'll be considering. But there's even more than that. The inheritance here, Paul says, is not just the land of Canaan. It's not just the earth. Here Paul says something even more stunning in verse 17. In Christ, we the people of God will inherit not just the land, not just the earth, but God Himself. God is our ultimate and final inheritance. We will inherit God. Do you see that in the text? And if children, heirs, heirs of God. And this promise actually goes all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. So when God first made the promise to Abraham, He says, I'm going to give you descendants, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to give you this land, and I'm going to make you a great nation. None of those things were the most treasured possession or promise that God made to Abraham or vowed to Abraham. Rather, the most treasured promise that God gave to Abraham was himself. In Genesis chapter 17, verse 7, God says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring and after you through their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. My friends, this is the promise of the gospel. And all the other benefits that we receive through the gospel come to us through this reality and pale in comparison to this reality of knowing God. Knowing Him in His beauty and in His glory and His grace and in His power and His mercy and His compassion. This is the ultimate purpose of the gospel. This is the ultimate inheritance that we receive in Christ. It is God Himself. The psalmist captured this idea so beautifully in the Psalms. 
As we see the psalmist over and over again desiring and pursuing above all things, not the gifts of God, but God Himself. In Psalm 16 verse 11 we read, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Or in Psalm 27 verse 1, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. Do you realize that that's what we're doing right now? Why do we gather together for worship? As we reflect upon the goodness of God and the mercy of God and the kindness of God, even in this text, to grant us an eternal inheritance in Christ, what are we doing? We are gazing upon the beauty and the grace and the mercy and the power and the glory of our great God. Psalm 73, verses 24 to 26. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you see what the psalmist is declaring over and over and over again? God is not just the dispenser of good gifts. God is the gift. He is the ultimate gift. And every gift that we are to enjoy in this life, yes, we should enjoy it, but it should not terminate in the enjoyment of the gift, but rather the gift should be a means by which then we are lifted up to rejoice in the giver and to glory in His goodness. The Apostle Peter says that this is in fact the purpose of the gospel. This is the great reward of the gospel. In 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 18, Peter writes, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? Here's the purpose, that He might bring us to God. Why did Christ die on the cross? Why was He raised from the dead? For forgiveness of sins, for adoption of sons, for an eternal inheritance. Yes, all of those things. But ultimately, all of those things are means which lead to the ultimate goal of bringing us to God. Why are we forgiven? So that we might know God. Why are we adopted as sons? So that we might relate to Him as Father. Why are we granted this inheritance? Because the ultimate inheritance we receive is God Himself. God is the great end of the gospel. John Piper actually wrote a book on this subject. Let me quote to you some of what he says there in the book. He says, quote, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities that you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? The redeemed have all their objective good in God. God Himself is the great good which they are brought to the possession and enjoyment of by redemption. Listen to this. He is the highest good and the sum of all that good which Christ purchased. Christ is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. 
God is their wealth and treasure, their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem and is the river of the water of life that runs and the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints and the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things and they will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels or in each other or in anything else whatsoever will be what will be seen of God in them. Do you see that? Even our enjoyment of the angels, even our enjoyment of one another will be means by which we will be pointed up to God who is the ultimate giver of all good things. This, Paul says, is our inheritance. Yes, it's the land. Yes, it's the earth. Yes, it's the new heavens and the new earth. But at the end of the day, the substance of our inheritance is God Himself. Third, the source of our inheritance. Look there in verse 17 and we read these words. If children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, your translation might read, instead of fellow heirs, it might read joint heirs or co-heirs with Christ. And this is an amazing statement here. In Hebrews chapter 1 verse 2 We read there that God has appointed Christ the heir of all things. And here Paul says, now Christ is the heir of all things, and here Paul says that we are co-heirs or joint heirs with Him. Now, in order to understand this, so so Christ is the heir of all things and we are co-heirs with Christ, in order to understand what's taking place here, we need to understand that Christ is not an heir on account of us, right? Christ is not an heir because he hitched his wagon to us, but rather we are heirs on account of him and only on account of him and through him. It's by union with Jesus, who is the heir of all things, that then we receive our inheritance. Paul says it this way in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Now the promises, or we could say the inheritance, now the promises were made to Abraham... And to his offspring, it does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. In other words, all the promises, all the promises that were made to Abraham come to us through the promised seed, the son of Abraham, Jesus. And we see this principle, it's fascinating to see this throughout the Old Testament because this principle plays itself out through the story of redemption that's recorded in the Old Testament. The promise of God comes to God's people all throughout history. It comes to God's people through the promised seed, through the chosen heir until it culminates in the Lord Jesus. So the promise comes through Abraham. And then the promise comes through Isaac. And then the promise comes through Jacob. And you can follow it through the Old Testament. Then it comes through David and so forth until it culminates in Christ. And what we see is that when the promised seed lives by faith in God and obedience to God, 
And when the people of God are rightly related to the promised seed, then the people of God experience the favor and blessing of God. So, one example is after David's death. Okay, so you have Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and then later down the line you have David. David's in the line of the promised seed. And after David dies, he has a son, Rehoboam, who becomes king. And Rehoboam is not as righteous and honorable as David is, but he's still the promised seed. And Rehoboam does some foolish things, and as a result, the people rebel against him. In 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 16, we read, And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse is David. Jesse was David's father. And then they say, To your tents, O Israel. So Rehoboam, who is the promised seed of David... He does something foolish, and the people say, we don't want to have anything to do with David, and with the line of David, and with the kingdom of David, and they rebel. Now, do you know what happens as a result? Two of the tribes remain faithful to Rehoboam. They come to be known as Judah. They're in the south. The other ten tribes of Israel rebel, and they split. They come to be known as Israel. And for centuries, there is conflict between the two. And in all those centuries, do you know that the ten tribes in the north that rebelled, they never had one righteous and good king. Not one. In Judah in the south, there were a number of righteous kings. There were evil ones, kings as well. But the line, the promised line, the promised seed continues. In the north, there are no good and righteous kings. You see, my friends... The people of God, when they are in right relationship to the promised seed, they experience the favor and the blessing of God. But apart from the promised seed, they are cut off from the blessing, the favor, the inheritance of God. So then we go forward in history, right? You have Abraham, you have Isaac, you have Jacob, you come to David, and then his son Rehoboam, and then there's the line continues and continues, and then it culminates in the person of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David, the promised seed. And when Jesus is ministering, he also experiences opposition and hostility. And when the religious leaders are opposing him, and when they are rebelling against him, Jesus indicates that history is repeating itself. The people of God are opposing the promised seed. They're rejecting the chosen heir. Jesus actually captures this idea powerfully in a parable that He tells in Luke chapter 10. In Luke chapter 10, He tells this parable of a master who has a vineyard. And He entrusts his vineyard to a tenant. And the tenant, He oversees the vineyard for a time. Now, in the parable, the master who owns the vineyard is God and the tenant is Israel. God has entrusted His kingdom to Israel for a time. Jesus goes on in the parable to say that after a while, the master sends a servant to the vineyard, to uh, the tenant, to receive a share of the fruit, the crop that is his, rightfully owned by him. But instead of the tenant receiving the servant and sending back some which belongs to the master, instead the tenant takes the servant and beats him and throws him out of the vineyard. 
And so then the master sends another servant to the tenant. And he asks for a share of the crop for his master. But instead of giving a share of the crop to the master that's rightfully his, he beats the second servant, throws him out of the vineyard. And it happens a third time. He sends a third servant. He, the tenant beats him, throws him out of the vineyard. The servants are representative of the prophets of God that God sent to the people of God throughout the Old Testament and were rejected over and over and over again. And then Jesus says that the master comes to the conclusion, they have rejected my servants. What am I to do? This is what I will do. I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But Jesus goes on to say, when the tenants saw him, that is the beloved son that that had been sent, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. And then Jesus asked this question, what will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. You see, my friends, the only way to receive the inheritance is to be united to the one who is the chosen heir. The only way for the people of God to know the favor and the blessing of God is for them to be united to the promised seed. And what we see throughout the story of the Bible is that over and over again, the promised seed, the chosen heir, is rejected by the people of God, culminating in the people of God rejecting Jesus himself. And therefore, my friends, if we are to know the blessing of God, if we are to enjoy the inheritance of God's blessing, we must hitch ourselves to the son of Jesse. And I'm not speaking of David. I'm speaking of David's greater son, the Lord Jesus. We must entrust ourselves to Jesus Christ, the promised seed. We must identify ourselves entirely with God's son, the appointed heir of all things, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, God's Son, died on the cross and paid the full penalty and price for our sins so that through faith in Christ, who is the appointed heir of all things, we might be adopted as sons and we might be appointed heirs to God's kingdom. And so we can only be heirs of God's great inheritance. We can only be heirs with Christ if we have entrusted ourselves to Christ the heir of all things. Fourth, consider the condition required. So the logic of our inheritance, we're sons, then we're heirs. The substance of our inheritance, the ultimate inheritance we receive is God Himself. The source of our inheritance is only through Christ and faith in Christ that we receive this inheritance. And then fourth and finally, the condition of our inheritance. Now for the sake of time, I'm not going to say as much here, and we'll be elaborating on this some in the weeks to come. But notice the condition that is required there in verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, here it is, here's the condition, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. Now you see here that Paul continues to emphasize this idea of union with Christ. And the way we see this in our text, especially, is that he continues to use this preposition over and over again. In the original language, it's soon, and uh, the way you translate it is with, okay? 
So you see it there. He uses it three times. We are fellow heirs, here it is, with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we might also be glorified with Him. You see, we are united to Christ. We are united to Christ in that we are united to Him as an heir. We are united to Christ in that we are united to Him with His sufferings. And we are united to Christ in that we are united with Him in His glorification. So we don't only receive when we unite ourselves to Christ by faith or God in His grace works in us in such a way that we are united to Christ by faith. We not only receive Christ's inheritance, we also share in the sufferings of Christ's earthly experience. And you can't separate the one from the other. You can't say, well, I want the blessings and the inheritance of Christ, but I don't want the sufferings. It doesn't work that way. Union with Jesus means oneness with Jesus, both in His inheritance and glory and in His sufferings and loss. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to be united with Jesus in His sufferings? To suffer with Him, as Paul says here. Well, here Paul brings us, in some ways, full circle in this argument that he's been making. So go back and look at verses 12 to 13 and we read these words. Just a few verses prior. Verse 12, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Do you see that what Paul is saying here in verse 13 is the same thing that he's saying in verse 17? It's the same truth stated differently. In verse 13, if you put to death the deeds of the flesh, you will live. In verse 17, if you suffer with Him, then you will be glorified with Him. It's the same idea. It's the same concept. When we are united to Jesus, like Jesus... And this is what we see fleshed out in the life of Jesus. Like Him, death leads to life. Crucifixion leads to resurrection. The cross leads to a crown. Suffering leads to glory. So what the Apostle Paul here is saying is, put to death the deeds of the flesh and you will live. Die to yourself. Die to the old man and you will live. Or you could say it this way, Suffer with Christ, and if you suffer with Him, you can be assured you will also be glorified with Him. This is the condition of our inheritance. And it's not that in, in one sense that we must do this in order to gain the inheritance, but rather it's in being united to Christ that of course we will live this way, because we are so one with Christ that the experience of Christ becomes our own. That just as He laid down His life, just as He died in honor to His Father, so we also, by union with Christ, will lay down our lives, give ourselves in honor to our Father so that we might be glorified with Him. My friends, if you've turned from your sins and trusted in the Lord Jesus, if you are a Christian then you are a son of God. You are an heir of God. 
And what this means is that even though you may be working a minimum wage job this summer, or maybe you're barely living paycheck to paycheck, in Christ you are rich and wealthy beyond your wildest imagination. It is as Jesus said to his disciples in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. That's what the Apostle Paul is saying here in these verses. It is the Father's good pleasure. It is his delight that he has appointed you as an heir in Christ and given to you the kingdom of God. You may be here this morning and instead of working for minimum wage or barely making it paycheck by paycheck, you may be quite wealthy according to worldly standards. And I believe what Paul would have to say to you is don't cling too tightly to that wealth. Don't live for that wealth because it can deceive you. It's transient, it's temporary, it's fleeting, and it will pale in comparison to the inheritance that is yours and will be yours one day. My friends, if we are convinced that this inheritance is ours through Jesus Christ, it should dramatically impact our lives. It will influence the way we spend our energy, our time, our money. It will sustain us and uplift us in times of trials and sorrows, and it will empower us to grow up into maturity in Christ. By the grace of God, we are sons of God, and we are heirs of God in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for the great hope that You have given to us, granted to us in Christ and in the gospel. Lord, help us to understand more fully, to grasp more deeply the riches that are ours in Christ. And we pray that as we do so, we would grow up and mature in Him. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it.